From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. Music critic Ben Ratliff has been thinking about musical virtuosity for the past several years, and he's joined us today to talk about the concept. Ratliff is the author of four books, including Every Song Ever, 20 Ways to Listen, and Coltrane, Story of a Sound. For 20 years, he was a pop and jazz critic at the New York Times, and in 2016, he became an Institute Fellow. Ben, welcome. You've been writing and thinking a lot about virtuosity lately. Why don't you give us a little bit of, a, of an idea about how you got interested in, in such a concept? Well, it, it, it first, virtuosity was a chapter in this book I wrote called Every Song Ever, where I was trying to figure out different through lines to create through music in order to listen more widely. It was just like different strategies for broad listening in order to defeat the algorithm. To defeat the algorithm. How yeah. do you, what do you mean by defeating the algorithm? Well, anybody who uses uh, a streaming service for music like Spotify knows by now that um, they are being reduced to a data set. And um, they are most likely being fed music that Spotify or the algorithms being used by Spotify predicts that you will like. And um, this idea is really interesting, but also troubling Mm -hmm. to me because for me, listening is such a personal thing. I mean, it's like, uh, it's what made me who I am. You know, I mean, it's like um, discovering music and figuring out what you respond to and making connections on your own uh, from song to song in any direction is how you sort of create your personality. And it influences everything, you know, how you talk and walk and dress and fall in love and think and everything. So I wrote Every Song Ever thinking of 20 different ways, sort of filters for listening, ways to listen. And one of them was the idea of virtuosity, listening for virtuosity. So is it listening for a set of performances that you think exemplify virtuosity? The idea of virtuosity, whether that idea is real or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, these the chapters in the book were not very long. They were essayistic meditations. Mm-hmm. But the idea stayed with me a little bit. I didn't do anything about it. But then the Townsend Center at UC Berkeley reached out and said that they asked if I wanted to do a lecture about virtuosity. Oh, specifically about virtuosity. That's what yeah, they were Yeah, it was their in. idea, and uh-huh. it came from having read the book. And I think that they figured, rightly, that it's a, a big, slippery idea. Whenever I hear the word virtuosity, I feel a little bit like Barbara Kruger or Godard, and, and they're quoting other people. Uh, I'm not sure whether to reach for my checkbook or a gun. And I think you have that same kind of relationship to virtuosity. Well, it's a word that I hear a lot from people who are trying to sell me something. Mm -hmm. It's like power from a blind committee. You don't know where that power comes from. Yeah. Uh, You don't really know what it's all about. What is a virtuoso? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it depends on who you're talking to. And so for people to withhold the term virtuoso to some, I mean, virtuoso these days just sort of means really good. Yeah. So it means yeah. great, you know. Yeah. But to withhold that term for some musicians and to use it purposefully with others almost seems like an abuse of power, you know. So more and more as I have come to realize this, I try not to use the word, mm-hmm. although I'm sort of like a recovering addict about it. I mean, I used it a lot. <laughs> the thing is there's an I- there's a space, there's an idea that requires a word. 
And virtuoso is a sort of unfortunate word at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I used it anyway and was very unhappy with myself (laughs) afterwards. Part of the difficulty of the word is that it has a, it has a few distinct uses. One is just like a s- sort of cold excellence, you know, like you meet the demands of complicated music mm-hmm. and you meet it clearly and confidently. So if you're playing a certain kind of European classical music repertoire list, for example, mm-hmm. which has a lot of complicated fingerings and fast flourishes, you know, you play it and you play it well, well, you know, I suppose you're at the level of a virtuoso. Mm-hmm. And virtuosos thought of in that way can be cultivated. They can be created. And that's how, you know, you got to do that in order to have a concert career. And that's a sort of, I don't have a great mental association with those kinds of players. Mm-hmm. You know, like Mozart famously called a pianist a mere mechanicus. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's like, when you think of a mere mechanicus, you think of like a cold virtuoso. But then there are musicians who almost seem like they've grown their bodies around an instrument mm-hmm. or like it becomes just part of their bodies, becomes an, an extra appendage. To say that uh, they make playing the instrument sound easy is almost there, but not quite. It's just like they get to what they want absolutely directly. No messing around. They yeah. just do it. It's like the Chuck Berry line. He could play a guitar like ringing a bell. Right. And I have seen people like that. And you have that feeling of like, oh, what it would be like to be that kind of But then there's a kind of musician who is technically excellent and blah, 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 but has something else, like something beyond instrumental excellence, Mm -hmm. some kind of remainder, something that you just don't know what it is. You don't know how to break it down. There's something beyond that level of mastery. Mm -hmm. And those people are called virtuosos too. Mm -hmm. So hence my confusion. Well, there's there's one place in the, in the, the Virginia Quarterly essay where you write, I wonder whether the first virtuosic performances we really noticed might be the most satisfactory ones we hear in our lives or most satisfactory one we hear in our lives, uh, which is a fascinating thought, this kind of idea of a, of a threshold experience. And it's almost an apex of listening very yeah. early in your, you know, your formative experience. Sure. Do you have a recollection of what that might have been for you? Yes. Jimi Hendrix. Oh, really? I mean, I don't know, at the age of... Uh... 11 or something. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I'd certainly heard musicians by that point who could really play. But yeah, uh, this is the record Electric Ladyland. And it might have been the, the tune called Come On, which I mentioned somewhere in the essay. Uh-huh. He he was one of those musicians who it sounds like the, the guitar was part was part of his body. Everything came out in one fluid motion. And there was something beyond that. And Maybe even a sense of like something's passing through him, like whatever whatever it is, it's coming from some mm-hmm. other source. There's a sense of grace or something. Grace is a really is a really good word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something else, some other quality. And I remember feeling how how does somebody do that? How is that possible? I I, I can't I couldn't really even ima- imagine the steps the steps taken toward getting to that level. It's just beautiful. It's something you can't really learn. I mean, it has, it's not a sense of perfection, but the aspect of it is almost 
of that type, which means that you can't work your way to perfection. It's either perfection or not perfection. Yeah. I think that's why grace is maybe a good word to think about in that context. You either have it or you don't. Right. Grace is a good word. In the Afro-Latin tradition, they use the word ashe. They don't really talk about virtuosos. Yeah, they just don't really talk about virtuosos. But they t- this word ashe, which is a sort of religious sense of grace, is important. Yeah. So, well, going back to the to the the Jimi Hendrix uh, experience, mm-hmm. uh, the experience of Jimi Hendrix and the experience of the Jimi Hendrix experience, were you already learning a learning an instrument at that point, or could we say that's the date that the critic was born? That's a good question. I mean, do I was, we have to have an experience of making music in order to appreciate what it means to be a virtuoso, in the sense of like struck by a the thunderbolt? No, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Okay. I mean, I, I just because I know functioning music critics who don't play an instrument. Uh And I'm sure that they have thoughts about virtuosity. You know, who am I to say that they can't or wouldn't? True, but it's hard to think of the best, like, art critics as not at some point in their lives being painters, for example. And there's always that sort of tension between, you know, knowing an instrument, knowing what it means to sing, knowing what it means to read music and thinking about it. Yeah. And feeling what you can't do. Knowing what it means to sing. Yeah, mm-hmm. that just that, or even better, knowing what it means to sing, and have somebody else listening to you. Yeah, that's important too. So I was a guitar player, but of no, you know, distinction. But just the, just to know how it feels to have the an instrument in your hands and and make a sound, make a sound to your own satisfaction, to spend time just playing one note or one phrase over and over, that kind of thing. Sure, I think it's it. It softens you up. It makes it easier to to think about concepts like virtuosity. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you would want to refer to this as vir- as a virtuoso painter. It's certainly a virtuoso performance. There was a famous painter from the 19th century, an English painter named Edwin Landseer, mm-hmm. who was especially famous for painting uh, circus animals and and uh, zoo animals. But he was ambidextrous, and he could paint. He would begin pa- uh, executing a painting with both hands at the same time, one on the right-hand corner, one on the left-hand corner with his left hand, and would paint so that the canvas would be completed in the center. He would apparently oh. do this as a kind of trick at parties as well. Huh. And you could see how that would be just, you know, so annoying <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and such an awful yeah. display of technique. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think it sort of gets to the idea about what it means to be a virtu- uh, the mere virtuoso. Yeah. I, the idea of virtuosity being, you know, vulgar, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I noticed that you've used the word vulgar in, in, in proximity to virtuosity in several <laughs> places. And it's an, it, vulgar, vulgarity is a really interesting <laughs> word, too, to talk about because you have to say, well, what exactly do you mean by vulgar? Uh, I suppose excellence being used as mere entertainment, um, the idea of a facility with an instrument that's just kind of given away cheaply, you know, just turning on the tap and letting it come out being cheaper Uh as opposed to struggling to find the right note and to locate you know, the precise, purposeful emotion somehow for right. that note or that kind of thing. So arpeggios are not always ipso facto vulgar. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> I don't have a hard and fast opinion about this because I love hearing some musicians who have incredible facility mm-hmm. and can go all over the place. I love melisma. I love melisma. I love I love melismatic mm-hmm. singers. Kind of the more the better. 
Yeah, for me. Because if you're going to do it a little, why not do it a lot? And uh, actually, and I, there's a, something I put in the, in the book, Every Song Ever. Bob Dylan was quoted saying something really grouchy about the singer Marsha Ambrosius singing the national anthem uh-huh. before a fight. Yeah. Then there was a lot of melisma in, in her version. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, like, she, you know, she, she bent that song out of shape. She made it unrecognizable. <laughs> you don't do that with a song that important. You yeah. Know? And I just thought, no, that, that's exactly what you do with a song that important. You know, all that, all that fancy stuff is a form of bending it and, mm-hmm. you know, altering it. And it's not, it's not necessarily cheap. Yeah. Well, know? I remember in that, around that point in, in that essay in the book or that section of the book, you talked about a reaction to a certain kind of uh, virtuosity that you said you felt condescended to. I think that was the, the, the verb that you used was condescended right. to. Okay. So this is the moment to say that sometimes I feel that virtuosity essentially, a widely agreed upon definition of virtuosity is one in which the musician is essentially saying through the instrument, you be quiet now. Like, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like... like I got it I can take it from here you know it essentially shuts down it shuts something down Mm -hmm. shuts down listener rather than opening things up and most of the time I don't like that feeling I feel like I'm being told to stop thinking I said that when I did this as a lecture in California and then afterwards somebody came up to me and said yeah I hear what you're saying but you know some people like to be dominated. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I am sure part of my Jimi Hendrix rapture as a kid was something of that was in there, you know? Just yeah. like, I want this person to just steamroller me. Uh-huh. You know, I, I want this person to, to tell me, I'm better than you can ever imagine, mm-hmm. you know? I think it's hard to think of a of a kind of example of virtuosity that that doesn't have that aspect to it. I mean, however, maybe this is a good time for us to say we've said a lot of things about the kind of negative uh, connotations of the word or the or the negative extensions of the word. Um, maybe give us a, a few examples of something that counts for you as virtuosity, or maybe this would be a good time to talk about uh, a couple of musicians who might exemplify virtuosic performance mm-hmm. and and something close that's that's non virtuosic. Two examples come to mind. One where, and and they're sort of in the same genre. They are in the same genre. Uh-huh. One where I think virtuoso, and one where I don't think virtuoso. I rather I think, wow, that is just a great human being. You know, yeah. like I don't know what the hell that person is doing, but I like it. The first one is um, a flamenco singer called La Niña de la Puebla, and. Here she is singing in the 1920s in Sevilla, accompanied by a guitarist, a great guitarist, Sabicas. And she, you, you know, you, her technique is legible. So that's Nina de la Puebla. And then the other example I would use to contrast it is La Nina de los Penes, another flamenco singer who is often talked about as, you know, the, the greatest 
female flamenco singer. And this recording is, I think, from the 40s, also Mm -hmm. just voice and accompanied by a guitarist. And for what it's worth, she is the singer referred to in Lorca's essay about Duende, Lorca's famous essay about Duende, where he talks about it in the context of flamenco singing. Uh Um, And he, he revered her. But so here is La Nina de los Penes singing. So you hear both of those and you think, what's the difference? Yeah, what is the difference? Tell well, us the difference. In the first one, I, I hear articulation. I hear skills, mm-hmm. you know, being used in very specific ways. Uh, separation between notes. Control. Sure. And uh, I don't know. I mean, the word classicism keeps coming to mind, but just mm-hmm. some, some sort of sense of like, this can be sorted and measured, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then with La Nina de los Penes, I just think there's much more uh, struggle for every note. It, you don't know where every note, we don't know where each note is going. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more that unquant- seems unquantifiable. This is not to say that there isn't, that she is not equally skilled uh, as La Nina de la Puebla. I mean, you know, these are both incredibly skilled musicians yeah. with their own vocabulary. They know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying one is learned and yeah. one is intuitive. I'm not saying that at all. Uh-huh. I'm just saying that in the case of the second thing we heard, I just don't think of the word virtuosity. Hmm. It doesn't, it just doesn't occur to me. I mean, I may be influenced by the Lorca essay uh-huh. from having read it, I, you know, and all his talk about how um, the best way to sing flamenco is to have sort of like the spirit of death sort of like fly out of your mouth, you know? <laughs> and it's all about death, death, death. And yeah. um, I guess I, my associations with that song is that, yeah, something external may be passing through her. Mm-hmm. She, she's, a, she's, a, she's laying herself open yeah. for some, something to happen. She, she, she herself might not even know exactly where each note is going to land, mm-hmm. you know? At least that's the impression I'm getting. Yeah. Um, she's such a skilled singer that she, she may know exactly where every note is going to land. But, um, I mean, there was a time when we were both listening to a lot of Ricky Skaggs. Yes, absolutely. Would you ever listen to somebody like that who could just tear it up, let's say in a bluegrass context, and, and feel almost headachy? Yes, like, uh-huh. Definitely. In fact, I think, and, and this is one thing I wanted to, to ask you about, I think there are certain genres that really do promote virtuosity. They prize it in a certain way. Totally. And they validate it in a certain way, mm. and it can become quite tedious. Although, the funny thing is that, you know, if we're going to talk about where the term came from, yeah. or where it really started to be used more widely, it was in the first half of the 19th century, mm-hmm. at the time of Paganini and um, Liszt. The Napoleon of the piano. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Liszt, especially, you know, really, what he was a composer. Yeah. Absolutely, like a great composer and a star performer. Mm-hmm. And people would come to see him 
Well, th- these were the early days of the traveling star. Yeah, you know the traveling solo star. So he would he would sweep through town and just like tear it up, you know. And mm-hmm. um, he'd play concerts or salons or whatever, and people would think that he was possessed by the devil. And and he created uh, a whole um, this vocabulary of stagecraft about uh, you know how to enter the space before sitting down at the piano and mm-hmm. what he would do and how he would throw his gloves on the floor or like dust off the piano bench with his handkerchief or the way he would fold his coat somewhere or you know and then start to play and when he'd get really riled up he would lift off the piano bench and all these things drove people like into a frenzy. Yeah, I can imagine. And he, it's like he cha- like he altered the temperature of the room sort of thing. <laughs> and Well, you compared him to, to Jerry Lee Lewis and kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I think. But I mean, the accounts of seeing Liszt play are so great. You know, like they're so much fun to read because these people are just, they're, they're trying to come to terms with what they've just seen. And, they, you know, they're totally over, overheated and overblown these accounts. But you get the sense that they really were changed somehow by the experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe they fell in love a little bit. Yeah. You know? And I think maybe they got the sense that here's a guy who entered a space and really commanded it in a weird way. And that's the connection I get with Jerry Lee Lewis, that when I have seen him play, I mean, you know, I started seeing him play way, way he was past all, that his was, prime. But well, that was only when he was in his nineties. <laughs> yeah, but he had he had the weird power to make everybody in the room think that he was looking at them or even through them. Mm-hmm. There was like a sense of danger of being in the room with him. Yeah, like anything could happen. Yeah. At, at any time. Yeah, and there is virtuosity in the Listian sense. Virtuosity extends to all the performative aspects, you know, how you create that tension yeah. in the room. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Lee Lewis has that. Mm-hmm. And he would lift off the piano bench like like Liszt <laughs> and shake his long hair. And I think that probably Jimi Hendrix is totally in the tradition of Liszt. Yeah, I think that's an interesting comparison. I mean, you certainly think about it's very hard to to draw up a mental picture of, of Jimi Hendrix that doesn't have him on stage doing something to an instrument that n- has really never been done before. I mean, mm-hmm. that he's on his knees and he's somehow sliding across, or he's got the uh, the guitar on the uh, you know on, like directly on the stage and he's somehow playing it, and he will probably at some point set it afire. Um, right. I mean, which is you know a literalization of exactly what we're exactly what we're talking about it's very hard to imagine him in a studio re- recording electric ladyland although that's the way we hear it right he did those things set his instrument on fire and all that and at the same time he was a composer an artist and a reasonable person like list mm-hmm. you know two other things that i really admire about him even on a single note level jimi hendrix was great like the profoundness of one single note is worth slowing down for and thinking about and really absorbing. Um, Yeah. So, um, but there's one other uh, application of the word virtuosity or just, or just a question I have, which is that this word is so roomy Mm -hmm. and so unfixed that I keep thinking it must be possible for somebody to not be a good musician 
in a traditional sense. Yeah, yeah. And be a virtuoso. No, that's an inter- That's a that's a very interesting question. Um, I think the way that, if I remember, recall, you you raised that in the essay, um, and, and it's it made me think about something you and I have talked a little bit about, which is whether whether you can be a virtuoso of other things that are not not musical. I mean, can you be a virtuoso slugger if you play for the Yankees or for the Mets? Probably not for the Mets because you're probably injured. Or if you are the jockey who rides secretariat, is it a virtuoso performance? Sure, but maybe it's by metaphor. But can you say that you're a virtuoso of horsecraft um, and of jockeying? Can secretariat be an equine <laughs> virtuoso? Mm-hmm. Uh, by the same token, I mean, we we talked about this the other day, I think. Um, but I think someone had asked you, can you be a virtuoso of pornography if you're a porn star? If you're especially talented. But I at think any rate. that what we're talking about is just grace and the, and the um, impression of being born to it mm-hmm. and the impression of, um, again, it's not so much that, that you make it look easy. Yeah. But that, um, but, the, but, you know, the, the, the musicians I'm interested in have something else, something beyond that. And I don't know what to call that, uh-huh. and I'm not I'm not content with calling it virtuosity. Uh-huh. And so it's going to be my aspiration to figure out how to write about it in a better way. It's just not going to be good enough to call George Duke a virtuoso and and be done with it. Yeah, you know, there's there's something else there, uh-huh. and also virtuoso. It's you know, it's just it has too many negative associations, not just for me, but for lots of people. Yeah. Um, do you have the same kind of faith that that's something that we should hope to become as listeners? And what and what would it mean for us to think of ourselves as virtuoso listeners? I mean, I resist the word virtuoso a little bit, but I think that the kind of listeners that many of us are becoming is the kind where we can synthesize huge amounts of information very quickly. And, and by that, I mean, we can think comparatively because we're, we're listening to so much now. You know, um, there's some some very wide-ranging American poll that was taken a few years ago about listening habits in America mm-hmm. that yielded the fact that, you know, like the average American listens to, you know, like four hours of music a day, so some some yeah, incredible amount. Really, and that includes a jingle on the television during a commercial or— I suppose or it includes that, yeah, anything. anything. Okay. Or l- music that you're listening to while you do the chores or whatever. Right. Like it doesn't have to be directed attention. Uh-huh. It's just just anything. But still, it gets in there. And um, I see, I know that I see more and more articles written about like all the hits from 2017 sound exactly the same. Yeah. And here's why. It compares them formally. Mm-hmm. And I never used to see articles written like this. Yeah. And I know that when we encounter a musician that we've never heard of before, uh, I'm saying we, and I, I don't like doing that, but I'm going to keep doing it just a little bit. Like, who is we? But many of us, mm-hmm. when we encounter a musician that we've never heard of before, for whatever reason, because all of a sudden they pop up in the news or, or our Twitter feeds or whatever, some of us might say, who is that person? I don't know who that person is. That's a problem because I know everything. You know, I'm mm-hmm. supposed to know who that person is. So we find out and we can find out within five minutes the outline of a musician's career. We can we can click through uh, a sufficient amount of that person's musical output to get the basic idea, the outline. 
That's a lot. I mean, I think that is the kind of listener that many of us are becoming. Yeah. Um, the kind of listener that's able to to do something with huge amounts of information. Yeah. To have to process it in a different way, yeah. but also to be able to to store it in a in in a way that we didn't use to store our, our knowledge about it, about uh, music. Yeah, and also to think comparatively. Yeah, because we're listening to far more songs per day uh-huh. than we used to. Do you think that the, the this sort of day that we really think of genres is is coming to an end, or um, when we think of ourselves as a certain kind of listener? I'm a fan of of this sort of music or that sort of music, or I listen, I, you know, I only listen to country Western music or I only listen to bagpipes in the evening. Um, it's definitely, are we reaching that point, reaching a point where, where you're, where you're seeing that maybe among, you know, listeners that they have just much more ecumenical taste? Well, it's definitely becoming blurrier. Yeah. I think genre is, is important for selling. Yeah. Genre is not really the right term, but no, but for this convers for the for the purposes of this conversation, it's really useful. Uh-huh. I'm into the idea of tradition more than I'm into the idea of genre. Right. Like I think genre is a fixed thing for selling, and I think tradition, innately, mm-hmm. the idea of tradition intrinsically is about growth over time. And I think that as long as there are, okay, let's talk about genre for a second. As long as there are, let's say, hip hop labels or hip hop imprimators or whatever selling hip-hop music yeah then there's still going to be a use for the idea of Mm hip-hop but if people like that gradually are plowed over by platforms which i kind of think is going to happen right then perhaps the idea of genre will recede Mm -hmm. because what's going on right now is that i mean think of spotify spotify is your library is your individual library. Right. It's also your universal library. It's also your filing system. It's also your sound system. Mm -hmm. It's also your radio. It's also your, I mean, you know, it has a certain way of presenting things visually. So it's your, it's a graphic design system. It's a, yeah, (laughs) like it's it's everything. It's all encompassing. It's taking every role. Yeah. Um, And it is a place that, like intensive self-fashioning, as you mentioned. I mean, it is yeah. where you really say, "This is what this is my uh, musical, my signature as a as a consumer of music." What, yeah, what my playlist, the playlist that I construct, the individualized playlist on Spotify. I mean, it's it's really autobiographical. Yeah, it's the curating, sharing exactly part, but also what I you know the playlist that I download. If I've got you know barely O's here, it says something about me. And if I have less McCann, it says something about me. It's, and, yeah. and it, it's a story you're telling yourself. It's about yourself. It's, I find it really, really amazingly interesting. Yeah. But I also wonder, uh, what do you think that says about the future of something like jazz criticism, for example, which, is, which I think requires a you know, very intensive knowledge of the history of, uh, of jazz, of the tradition. We're, we're stepping a little bit away from the question of virtuosity, but I'm curious what you think... Uh, uh, this this might uh... yeah jazz is funny it's it's more like classical music than it is like pop music in that to understand it responsibly mm-hmm. or sufficiently you have to understand it as like a hundred year continuity yeah to to basically know about jazz of the last five years and not really know that much about the past which is how many young people consume pop music yeah and that's fine it's just the way it goes i'm not casting aspersions this is just the way it goes mm-hmm. um like it's just it doesn't compute for jazz because musicians are coming out of a really long tradition yeah 
and um, they're always sort of communing with the ancestors. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so much easier to write about jazz when you take the anxiety away. Uh-huh. When you put the anxiety there, the anxiety is all is all you can see. Mm-hmm. It's all you can feel. You know, oh my God, is it gonna is it gonna end? When's it gonna end? How are we gonna know? What's the, what's the sign going to be? Yeah. that that it's coming to an end. I mean, I think it's jazz is changing, and now I'm hearing a lot more jazz that does not sound like the the tradition that I mm-hmm. used to know. I'm hearing lots of like essentially f- sort of four chord loops over and over and over with beats that are basically influenced by Jay Dilla or some kind of acoustic version of a hip hop concept. Interesting, good, cool, all that, you know, but it's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think those musicians are listening to, you know, McCoy Tyner and Duke Ellington and Keith Jarrett. And, uh, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I, I think that jazz is learned in schools. Mm-hmm. And they're going to learn those musicians, yeah. And they can do what they want with them, yeah. And maybe those, maybe it'll all come back or not. But I have one last thought. I want to circle back to the idea of what kinds, what kind of listeners we may be becoming. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the way that there are all these podcasts now, which attempt to explain why a particular song is effective, mm-hmm. and sort of breaks it down to the atom, and so there's this new skepticism of like, why does this song deserve to be popular? Right. Well, we're going to explain it to you um, <laughs> in a way that you will understand. And we'll show you that everything comes down to formulas and sort of layers of formula. And also the idea of tropes yeah. is just so like omnipresent. Mm-hmm. You ever seen the, the web the website TVtropes.org? No, no. It's completely amazing. Uh-huh. Because it breaks down TV shows and films and different kinds of popular entertainment into tropes. Uh-huh. And it cites tropes wherever they may occur. And it's a way of thinking about culture that twenty years ago, yeah. let's say basically only, you know, script writers and academics were thinking this right, way. Right, right. Now everybody seems to be thinking this way. Uh-huh. They're spotting tropes from movie to movie. And I think that we're listening to music in that way too. Like we're spotting conventions yeah. um, from song to song. That migrate in some kind of way that's a surprise to us. Yeah. Or, or many people tend to think of as surprising. Right. When they hear it and when it's shown to them. It's really analytical. Yeah. Maybe somewhat cynical. I don't know. Like it's perhaps it's taking the magic away a little bit or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. My brain isn't particularly wired that way. But I think that. When I think about the future of listening, I think about that a lot. Yeah. If you could, uh, if you were given the opportunity to ban the word virtuoso, would you do so? Does it still do enough labor that we really want to hang on to it? I'm not into ban- banning language. Well, I'm, I'm not saying you're a language banner. It's but, worth, um, but, but it's, it, it's worth if you bringing were king up the question. For a king of language for a day, and you could get rid of a few words. I would just want to send out a bulletin to the people to be sensitized to that word in a way that they hadn't been before and to to question it before they use it unthinkingly. Uh-huh. Well, I should point out the name of your essay is not against virtuosity, but mere virtuosity. Right. And uh, we thank you very much for coming by to, say, to speak to us today. Thanks, Eric. Okay, Ben, it's great to see you. 
This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org. 